This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show via telephone my next guest, Isaac Oates, who's the founder and CEO of JustWorks. Isaac, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. First things first, let's point point our listeners to your website. You've got a nice uh, domain with just dictionary words. It's justworks.com, justworks.com. Isaac, give us the elevator pitch for JustWorks. Yeah, JustWorks, we work with small and growing businesses to help them with payroll benefits, HR, and compliance. And basically, we do everything in one easy-to-use platform so that entrepreneurs and their teams can focus on the important stuff. All right. So maybe for the entrepreneurs and business owners out there, you could list what what the list of things is that you actually do for for them. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the big stuff is we process payroll for your employees, no matter what uh, state or city your employee is in. We offer access to benefits like medical, dental, vision, 401k, transit, uh, HSA, FSA, you know, any kind of like big company benefit that mm-hmm. uh, you want to offer, we have that. And then we offer HR support, uh, you know, both in our platform, uh, you know, a, a lightweight uh, employee database, as well as access to HR consultants who um, can help answer uh, the sort of uh, complex questions that come up, I think, for all entrepreneurs. And what do they, what do they pay for this service? Um, so the pricing varies a little bit based on the size of the company, but um, the base price is $99 per person per month. So a 10-employee company would pay about $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And and then what do uh, – what kind of uh, – uh, how do you articulate the benefit proposition to a, to a 10-person company? You, you say you're going to spend $1,000 a month, but this is what you're going to save. So how do you articulate that? Yeah, so it's really about time. I think entrepreneurs and business owners, amongst other things, they're the chief integrator in their business. They're the one that's kind of bringing everything together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what JustWorks is really about is bringing all of the different things together that an employer needs to hire, hire and pay and take care of their team. And so, you know, there's a huge time savings. Um, you know, in addition, you get access to uh, – benefits that we are able to sort of secure in bulk. So we have about uh, 60,000 employees on our platform. So it's as if we're buying for a Fortune 100 company and then passing access to those benefits onto small businesses. And then finally, you know, on the the talent front, you know, unemployment is at an all-time low. People have a really hard time getting, um, you know, attracting the employees that they want to their business and being able to offer uh, really competitive benefits is actually a, a major advantage for small businesses mm-hmm. that want want great talent. So you can be you can your benefit package can look like that of a big company, but you're a small company essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's almost yeah. like you're a department of a, a, a Fortune 100 company. 
Yeah. So, and and just on the health insurance question, and maybe it's a general question, many companies, I suspect, have pre-existing relationships for some of these services. Do you offer your own version of those things, or do you integrate their suppliers, or can you do both? Um, in general, we it, it depends on the specific benefit. So, you know, we allow employers to kind of bring their own if they want to, except for mm-hmm. payroll. We always we always do yeah. payroll processing. Um, and, you know, in terms of the benefits, you know, if, if an employer wants to keep using their own, they can do it and they can, you know, set things up. But, you know, the truth is it's a lot more tedious because, you know, there's a ton of kind of like data transfer. You know, an employee says, you know, I want to increase my 401k contribution. The next thing you know, the CEO of, of, of this company is like sitting there entering the deduction into a payroll system. And so using the ones that we offer, they're really tightly integrated to save a huge amount of time and, and mistakes. Yeah. All right. So, so Isaac, this is a, I would say, pretty well-established category. There's a, even an acronym, PEO, which I think is Professional Employer Organization, something like that. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah, PEO is even an acronym for it. I was actually, I actually lost a few bucks investing in one of your competitors at one point. <laughs> um, so I know it's been around for for a long time. So, so what's different? What's different about uh, JustWorks? Yeah, you know, so um, it is a category that's been around for a long time. And, you know, I think when the industry, the, the, what a PEO is, you know, is essentially, uh, you know, a, a company like us acts as the employer of record. So when I said mm-hmm. we sort of look like a Fortune 100 company, what you can imagine is basically that JustWorks has 60,000 employees, right? right? Even though they're they're also the co-employees of these other, these other companies. And so, um, you know, the model's been around for quite a long time. But I think, you know, it was originally sort of used really as kind of like an arbitrage opportunity. So people would sort of find um, tax loopholes, uh, you know, and then later they would they would sort of, you know, say like, well, we can save some, some money on medical. And like that, you know, we'll just kind of capture some of the difference. And, you know, I think what happened is that time went by, uh, people, uh, you know, younger people, you know, who are really focused on, you know, getting everything that they do in their life online, um, you know, kind of the POs didn't really capitalize on this. And so, you know, while our content is kind of the same, like you can get, you know, an Aetna PPO 1000 through us, or you can get an Aetna PPO 1000 through one of our competitors, like it's going to be the same insurance plan. But the way that we deliver is, is totally different, you know, and I think there are really a couple of ways to think about that. One is the online product that we have. So, you know, it's a, a great interface. It's super easy to use. Um, you sign in. It's exactly what you think a modern product should look like in 2019. Um, you know, on the employer, on the employee, uh, in terms of the employee experience. Both the employer and the employee Okay, experience. yeah. So, you know, super easy to use, um, you know, super intuitive. You can do pretty much anything yourself, which I think people, and especially younger people today, really like. Um you know, in addition, we have uh, phenomenal support. So, you know, we offer 24-7 support. Um, you know, our support reps are extremely knowledgeable. You know, they answer really complex questions um, from people. Even, you know, they might be at the hospital or the doctor's office or going through some major life event. Maybe they got fired the other day. And, you know, our support people can really help them. Um, and then the third thing is our pricing, which is um, easy to understand and transparent. You know, it's on our site at justworks.com slash pricing. And, 
you know, I would say that our competitors, um, you know, the products aren't as good, the service isn't as good, and the pricing is opaque and often higher. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I looked at your LinkedIn, and and it looks like you. Um, so your background is you studied computer science at University of Illinois, and then you got an MBA at Cornell. Did you going to school always dream that you would grow up and found a uh, a PEO? <laughs> um, no, that kind of reminds me of those commercials when I was a kid about how nobody wants to grow up and be a junkie. Um, <laughs> so, no, you know, I um, I've always loved technology. Uh, you know, I learned to program when I was. I was 10, and, um, you know, I spent, I spent a bunch of time at Amazon after college kind of learning about payment processing in particular, and really kind of like the way that I came across this business was that I had co-founded a company with some friends about uh, 10 years ago in 2008, and we raised um, about a million and a half dollars in venture funding. It was definitely the most amount of money I had ever seen land in a checking account mm. at one time, and you know, we were like, well, great, we should probably uh, start paying the employees that we're trying to hire and also pay ourselves. And I called um, a huge payroll company that I won't name, but that everyone else has heard of. <laughs> and, you know, it was just this, like, super low-tech experience. Like, I was faxing all the time. And, I mean, I'm kind of like, why am I on a fax machine? You know, like, a, a bike messenger would come by every month with these, like, plastic packets to insert in a, a three-ring binder. And I'm just like, I don't really see, you know, how this is – this is 2008 and, you know, it's like supposed to be the future right now. And so, uh, you know, our company was acquired at the end of 2009. I spent uh, three years at Etsy, which was our acquirer, building their payments platform. And then when, you know, when the time came to, to leave Etsy at the end of 2012, I, um, I just knew this was a pain point. And I guess, you know, as a, an engineer and a product manager, I've always believed that the easiest problems to solve are the ones that you yourself have experienced. And so I literally just built something that was the thing I would have wanted. Um, and that's how I ended up being a PEO. So definitely didn't, you know, grow up aspiring to the industry. Yeah. But, you know, it's actually a great, um, it's a great industry to be in. You know, so it, it, it raises a really interesting question to me. I, I don't know if you've followed, at least I've, I've been seeing on Twitter, huge amount of traffic the last two weeks over, over Zoom uh, and their S1. So they Zoom teleconferencing company, video conferencing company that is yeah. going public. And the interesting comments have been, wow, this is a this is a category in which they aren't really doing anything new. They are just executing better than everyone else on a, a, a pretty ordinary product. Uh, and I, I wonder if that characterizes what you guys have done and, and what your thoughts are on how different you have to be as an entrepreneur to find an opportunity? Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I mean, the zoom S one is, is extremely impressive. Um, you know, I guess the way I think about it is that, um, you know, even though the, the, the sort of payroll and PEO space have been around for a long time, you know, what actually changed was the customer. And so, you know, what, what used to be this, you know, this outsource model where, um, you, you know, you would sign up, you would have an account manager or a payroll specialist, you know, they would call you every Friday and ask you for the numbers so they could run the, the payroll. Um, you know, that's a, that's a model that I think worked fine for earlier generations. I think if you look at millennials in particular, you know, these are people that grew up 
you know, buying plane tickets through Kayak and trading their stocks yeah. online. And basically, like, they don't want to have to talk to anybody. They want to be able to solve their own stuff. But if it's not going right, they definitely want to be able to call and have somebody who's really knowledgeable pick up the phone. Because these people also detest, you know, like the big cable companies and cell phone companies where it seems like no one can help. And so I think it was really kind of understanding that that customer, which, you know, was me, and kind of saying, like, let me build a version of this for those people. And so I think there was a shift, but it was actually sort of like in the market versus the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting. If, if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Isaac Oates, who's the founder and CEO of JustWorks. Um, Isaac, I want to ask you a, a couple other questions about the industry and maybe what else has, has changed, maybe enabled by the technology, because I think those insights are really interesting. Uh, the company that I invested in, and, and actually, you may, you may know, it's a company called Staff One, um, and they were operated in, in Texas. And, and one of the um, things that really struck me as strange about the PEO business was, first of all, they ended up carrying – this huge amount of of um, they ended up actually making the payroll payments and invoicing that to the to the customer. So the revenues on these companies were crazy. They had all the payroll of all the companies on their books. It was just this very strange accounting thing. And then the second thing is it was very regional. So it seemed like you were always it, it was it felt very much like a you know shoe leather, knocking on doors, cold calling kind of business to acquire comp uh, customers, all very regional. And I wonder if some of that has also been modernized uh, and and in the industry. Yeah, you know, I think the answer is absolutely yes. So on the first, on your first point about, you know, accounting for this kind of business, you know, I think um, I'm not, I'm not an expert at accounting, but I think, you know, especially with kind of the rise of, um, internet marketplaces and other things like that. I think, you know, some of the, the rules and guidance around how revenue is classified, you know, mm -hmm. were sort of like tightened up and updated. And so PEOs that used to um, declare all of the wages that came through uh, their system as, as revenue, uh, no one does that anymore. Oh, okay. um, so there, yeah. so there, are, there are some, you know, uh, some things. So for example, insurance, revenues you know they still kind of count as revenue and um different players kind of like show it differently on their financial statements but the whole thing where it was like all the wages were revenue that's that is definitely in the past um then you know your other point um which i remind me of your other regional point. how regional and acquiring regional customers yeah. yeah yeah so this was really interesting and i think this applies both to the peo and the, the payroll industry, you know, I think that um, while a lot of things, uh, a lot of modern businesses are sort of post-geography, so to speak, I, I think that, um, you know, small businesses and, and entrepreneurs, like, they buy in sort of regional patterns. So the way I think about it is that, you know, an entrepreneur, like, they spend time obviously building their business, but they also socialize with other people that um, run other businesses, and probably not the same kind of business, but a business, but who they're socializing with are people that are nearby, right? Somebody they could have a beer with or go out to lunch with or whatever. And so, you know, I think, you know, if, if what you're really sort of selling is trust and credibility, 
that it, that is essentially something that is built mainly on a local level in this kind of business. And so, you know, while I think the days of massive field field sales forces kind of across the country, you know, maybe behind us in this particular industry, I think the kind of regionalization isn't. And so we take it very seriously to kind of understand, you know, if we're calling on a customer in, in Dallas, you know, exactly where that customer is and sort of the context that they, they operate in. And and how do you uh, acquire customers? And and I guess a related question maybe you could speak to as well is, you said it's predicated on trust, and yet you guys were a startup. And so I wonder how a startup in this space builds trust with a, with a customer. How do they get them to take a chance on you as opposed to one of the more established players? Yeah. Um, so uh, great questions. So in terms of acquisition, you know, we have a, a, a pretty healthy mix of channels. So outbound sales, uh, inbound marketing, and then channel sales are really kind of the three major channels. And so, you know, we um, we call on businesses and we email and, you know, try to get in touch. And that that's certainly the lion's share. But, you know, marketing and driving awareness, which also drives credibility, um, you know, is like an increasing part of of our, our business. So, um, you know, in terms of building credibility and, and trust as a startup, you know, I think our really early customers, um, I mean, this is a little bit like crossing the chasm, except mm-hmm. without the chasm per se. Um, you know, like our early customers were innovators and early adopters who saw what we were trying to do and kind of understood what we were about and were willing to buy, um, even though, we had, I would say generously, we had an 80% kind of product. Um, and, you know, so they, they didn't necessarily mind or maybe they've been appreciated that we weren't sort of like a powerhouse in the space. And then I think what really has happened, and it's kind of a fascinating thing to watch, is as we've achieved uh, market depth, especially here in New York City where we're based, um, you know, customer expectations shift. And... Uh, they expect to have 100% on, you know, they don't, they don't want to know that it's on your roadmap. They want to know that you have the feature right now. Right. Um, and so we've kind of been climbing that curve, but to some degree we climb the curve in, um, in every market. And then I would say the one other thing is, you know, we've done everything we can to kind of take advantage of outside certifications. So, you know, SOC 1 and, and SOC 2 uh, there's a PEO certification that exists at the federal level now. You know, we basically, as soon as all of those things were available to us, we went for it because those are trust markers we could use mm-hmm. with customers. Yeah, so I I wonder if you could speak to, just make a forecast about what this industry looks like if we fast forward to the end game or let's say 10, 10, 15 years from now. Is this an industry in which there really should be three or four players at most or is this an industry that's likely to remain fairly fragmented? Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, there's probably a thousand, roughly like a thousand PEOs and, mm-hmm. and service bureaus out there, but only a few that are really big. Um, I think that there will be, you know, there'll continue to be some some consolidation because there definitely are scale benefits. But, you know, I think that, I think there's always room in the market for um, a player that really understands their particular customer or their particular niche. And even if they don't have all of the scale benefits that a big player does, you know, it's worth it to their customer 
because the the that that smaller player kind of understands. So, you know, and there are software providers and so on that sell into the space. So, you know, maybe it will consolidate somewhat, but I think there's just a certain part of the population that really appreciates having someone that is local and does understand their particular niche. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, about fundraising. It looks like, you know, I probably should start with this, which is you guys are, are, are sizable and have been pretty successful. So if I'm to believe Crunchbase, you've raised almost a hundred million dollars in, in, including a series D about a year ago. And, I wonder if you can just speak to the fundraising process and maybe what your investors are seeing the future look like. Yeah. So, um, so we've raised 93 million to date. Um, you know, obviously the checks at the beginning were a lot harder and a lot smaller and then they sort of become larger and easier. Um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously the first, the first couple of rounds were really, about uh, kind of our our vision, and this is a tough one to sell because I think, you know, in general, the kind of the kind of conventional wisdom out there was that this is a space in which the product is irrelevant and only distribution matters. Yeah, and it it took a long time to find people slash convince people that kind of could see that maybe product really really did matter. Um, how, how did you, know, you, I mean, that's super curious because I mean, that's sort of where our conversation started. I was skeptical. I'm like, wait a second. This is a, this is a near commodity. How can this be a startup opportunity? How did you convince those first investors that product really did matter? You know, so if, you know, if we're being totally honest, which I think we might as well be, um, I think that the first couple of investors, I'm thinking particularly of our, sort of seed and series A investors, mm. they kind of had their own thesis that matched ours mm. when I met them. Yeah. So they kind of said, oh, we've been thinking about this and you match what we're thinking about. So instead of like finding a way to do it, we'll invest in you. And that's a good thing because I think I wasn't especially articulate about what the opportunity was. And yeah. so I think we got pretty lucky there. I want to I want to yeah. just interrupt you, Isaac. Hold that yeah. thought because I want to just underscore it, which is I've heard this advice a lot, but this is the best illustration of it I've heard, which is you you're wasting your time trying to convince an investor to believe your thesis. You're better just screening on do they already believe your thesis? And it sounds like that's exactly what happened here. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think later, you know, as we started to, you know, get some momentum in the market. It actually became a lot easier to just say, well, look, like you can believe it or not believe it, but, uh, but this is. I think you're still there. Are you Isaac? I don't know if Isaac is, uh, is, is still here. I heard a, I heard a dial tone and then uh, nothing back. So, um, I'm just going to underscore that point while they're working on getting Isaac back back on the phone. Um, you can spend, you know, a typical startup in this phase in a Series A or a Series Seed will do 30 to 40 uh, meetings or calls um, around their business plan. And you can get into this trap of trying to convince people mount additional evidence that, in fact, you're right about your hypothesis. But probably a more efficient use of time 
is to simply screen on that. So very quickly assess whether the investor is uh, believes with your basic thesis or not. It's not to say you can't learn from the investor feedback, but you're probably wasting your time just to trying to convince people who aren't who aren't buying it. All right, Isaac, I think we got you back. Yes. So you were saying. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, we were basically. I think you know that that early part, you know, was just incredibly challenging mm-hmm. in terms of the fundraising. And then, you know, I think what happened is that people started buying and it became, you know, when we would talk with an investor or a prospective investor, they would start to talk with our customers and maybe they'd already talked with a few of our customers. And even if they didn't know 100% why, they'd be like, okay, well, I see your customers are crazy about this. And it's like really interesting also because this is a category in which, um, in which you really don't expect any level of passion right. from your customers. I mean, yeah. you look at the brands out there, I mean, they kind of look like Tron. And, you know, you look at, um, you, you know, I was at a, a, a birthday party last, last December, and I ran into three different people at the same party who were customers or were employees of customers. And they're like, oh, it just works. It's amazing. We love you guys. And it's wow. like, you don't see that kind of enthusiasm in a category like this. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, as a small business owner myself, it's one of those things you you know it's painful dealing with the legacy providers. You don't really know how painful it is until you see an alternative. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. finally. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. I want to just ask, while, while, we, while we've got you, I'm going to ask you a hard question. So this week in the news, we're seeing the Affordable Care Act under under some stress. And it's in the last couple of years, we've seen some real challenges to healthcare in the U.S., um, tell, tell us what you think. What, what are, what are the big challenges in healthcare in the U S as a, you know, you're someone really at the front line between the insurer and the, and the small business. Uh, what are some of the challenges and what are the big opportunities for the U S? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the biggest, I mean, the cost of healthcare, you know, is, is going up really fast. It's going up way faster than inflation. So, you know, as your sort of, uh, you know, consumer share of wallet, you know, it's just sort of like occupying more and more space. And I, I think there are a lot of different reasons for that, but that is happening. But of course, everybody needs healthcare. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, there are obviously a lot of different ways to structure this. I've lived in England for a while. They have their whole own approach, you know, that includes a combination of public systems and, and private systems. But, you know, I do think it's really important that uh, people have access to health care one way or the other. Um, you know, and so right now, you know, where we're at is that, you know, it often comes through the employer. But, I mean, I think, I think the, the really, like, the big thing is around, uh, around cost of care. And, you know, there are some systems out there, um, for example, Kaiser. 